Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 155. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And this is... Aki the Cat, the Hobeck Cat, <laughs> who joins us on our sofa as we record this episode. The first of 2024... Uh, well, well, first new strictly, one. Strictly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the first new one of 2024 as we enter... Our fourth year of making this podcast. Wow, we're only six years away from double figures. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> well, welcome to the show. And uh, we should mention what we do. We run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Suspense. And thrillers. <laughs> so, welcome to the show. We're going to talk to a wonderful author a little later, Derek Thompson. Hey, that's Charlie from Casualty. It is not Charlie from <laughs> Casualty, nor is it Tomo, the racehorse, <laughs> the horse racing um, expert that people know. There are uh, five famous Derek Thompsons, and um, Derek does struggle with people contacting him, and expecting sending him copies for review. He says, "Yeah, and all sorts of things." <laughs> so, anyway, we're delighted to speak to him, and uh, he's a brilliant author of spy thrillers and uh, various other. Genres as well, yeah, uh, based no, in Cornwall. Yeah, very creative human. He is. <laughs> News is rather thin on the ground at this time of year in publishing, not least because I guess people go off on their holidays. They're all in Tuscany, aren't they? I'm not sure it's really their thing. I mean, they must, might be on the slopes of Europe. Oh, that's probably what it Caribbean, is, yeah. I think the Dubai, slopes. you name it. Well, you know, if you've got the money, I guess you go and use it. But uh, it's fair to say we don't. But anyway, news-wise... A story caught your eye, and it's not strictly a publishing story, but it's about the wider arts situation in the UK. Yeah, I mean, anything to do with the arts always catches my eye, and I always get um, upset if there's anything about cuts to the arts. And this is um, about a county that's quite close to our hearts, because one of our authors lives there, and she's very active in the arts there as well, so that's Lynn Laversha and the county of Suffolk. Um, so the local council basically announced that from April 2025, they are going to cut their funding to the arts in that county, uh, obviously in that county. <laughs> right. Well, yes. Look, it's part of their plans. By 100%. To, yeah, to make £64.7 million worth of savings over two years and that they're going to stop core funding of £500,000 to art and museum sector organisations from April 2025. Well, uh, this will affect Dance East, Eastern Angles Theatre Company, First Light Festival, the New Woolsey Theatre, Prima Donna Fest Festival, which is actually, we mentioned it earlier, well, 2023 that was mentioned because we had a guest who was appearing at the Prima Donna Festival, the Theatre Royal 
in Bury St Edmunds and Suffolk Art Link. Uh, they all said that the cuts in arts investment represented a saving of just 0.057% of the council's revenue budget. Um, well, it's... Not much. No, it's not. But, I mean, you've got to appreciate... I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending their decision, but I am trying to put it in context. Suffolk are, like all local authorities in the UK, certainly in England and Wales, struggling because they're just not getting the funding from central government that they need and they weren't given um, the powers to raise council tax to match inflation or come anywhere near it. So they're facing real-term cuts. And a number of big local authorities have gone bust. Yeah, but I, I have a question. So. Mm. When you when you have a count an area rich in the arts, so in theatre and festivals and music, yeah, and music, it draws people in. It draws people to spend money on in other ways in the local economy. So doesn't that generate money which feeds back into local government at all? I don't know. Yes, it does, but it takes time to get there. If you can imagine, I mean, yes, it can mean a lot to the local economy, but actually, where does the revenue come from apart from for argument's sake, parking to the local authorities. You see, this this is the problem is that, you know, the government will make money on VAT for certainly these activities. So the national government will make money. Yes, exactly. And mm. if it's not being but handed... But then the, if the national government makes money, they will surely pass it on to the local. Yes, but, I mean, you know, you've got to look at the... Uh, I'm, trying, I'm, not, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Oh, I'm not no. necessarily supporting it. But, you know, an influx of visitors to an area like Suffolk that already attracts large tourism numbers it's quite hard to detect which is generated by the arts events um and not just by the nature of the the coastline and the other things that are so attractive about suffolk and the other thing is that you know from a local authority or county council's point of view it's cost because of all the clearing up they've got to do afterwards yeah and, yeah but that, that still generates that generates the economy. Even the clearing up generates the I, economy. I'm not defending the decision, but I'm, what I'm saying is is it's not as clear-cut as, you know, um, a, an arts event is going to attract money into the wider economy that then reaches the coffers of an authority who can't afford to pay for school upkeep. Do you see what I mean? Yes, of course I see what you mean. But I just I, I get very cross at the short-term thinking of people in power in this country, whether it's local oh, totally. or national. Totally. No, look, I, I, I fully support that point of view in the sense that what we've seen is a massive cut in all sorts of artistic endeavours and, indeed, libraries, which we're going to get onto in a minute. And universities as well. I mean, it's what's happening with the universities at the moment is atrocious. The cuts to arts courses and... Yes, because, they're, again, they're just trying to stave off being made bankrupt. Mm. And the government are only really... They say, well, you know, these courses don't lead anything to anything. They just, uh, you know, we need more mathematicians and scientists. And that's, you know, their position at the minute. But, you know, within the next year, we'll see a change potentially of government. Um, and that's certainly where the, the polls are pointing. Mm. And we'll see whether things change. But nonetheless, I think this argument, unfortunately, is something that... the arts community as a whole has to remake day in day out year on year because it is too easy for people not to see its value compared to because there's always these false equivalences mm. of well if we pay for the arts we can't have you know a decent refuse collection or we can't have uh, schools 
funded properly. Which, or, this is actually what which, you just said. Yeah. Which all things, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, most public services in this, well, all public services in the country are underfunded now and are not properly provided for. And some would argue not well managed and all that sort of thing. And, you know, there's, there's arguments on all cases. But the bottom line is, philosophically, there is a government who doesn't believe these things are valuable. Yeah. Um, and therefore, that's why they're, they're withering and, and, and rotting. So and why we need a different a government with a different philosoph- philosophical outlook. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, yes, I mean, we can. It's not for us to say, <laughs> is it? I mean, on this podcast necessarily i'm you're saying that I, I'm, I'm well ingrained in the bbc way of not making that con- drawing yeah, that yeah, conclusion yeah. and i'm not ingrained in that so no okay I'm quite happy to draw my own conclusion <laughs> fair enough fair enough okay let's move on to this second story yes, so again from the guardian item. yeah and um, we talked about libraries well this is a is a, a story we've mentioned before and it's something that derek thompson and we were talking about before we did the podcast which is this ongoing problem for the British Library, who were hacked at the end of last year, I think it was October, they had a, a widespread cyber attack. And it is still paralysing the British Library's online presence. Yeah. The impact is, and now I do scoff, if that's the right word, I scoff. You can scoff. At their headline in The Guardian, which says this. Richard Osman, among authors, missing royalties amid ongoing cyber attack on British Library. Well, I'm, I'm sure that he, you know, he's going to really struggle to pay the bills this month because he won't have um, got his £6,600 maximum I was going to say, there is check. A, there's a cap on what you can earn, isn't it? So yeah. that, that's a, a, like a, a tiny drop in his uh, <laughs> ocean of... Um, income streams so well in fairness his books were the most borrowed in british libraries so i guess he does get last the, ma- the maximum oh he, yeah and and that you know you know if it was proportional you'd get a lot more than that but um they uh you know these payments are paid every year and every time a book is borrowed from a uk library the author will get if they're registered with the system 13 pence per lend She's actually not too bad because some authors get um, not that much more than that in royalties. True, true, true enough. Um, but the problem is that uh, the website is down. They can't. They're paralysed. They can't take. We we've been trying to register some of our authors and ourselves and myself as a narrator. Uh, if I get one of my books borrowed that I've narrated, I'm supposed to get thirteen p. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I haven't been able to get on the system. No. And uh, I'm just looking at the the situation. It was hit, yes, by a cyber attack at the end of October, and it is still down now. And uh, and that's about three months nearly. Well, yeah. two and a half months. Yeah, and it, it, it's the, a spokesperson for the British Library said we are making good progress towards issuing UK uh, public lending right payments before the end of March, in accordance with government legislation. But we recognise the importance of these payments for authors, illustrators, translators, narrators and everyone who contributes to books and are planning to issue a further update with a finalised timeline by the end of the month. But the fact is you can't go on there to register at the moment anyway. No, so because they're going to have a backlog, aren't they? They are, you know, they have no website and it's down. And I, I, I struggle to think of a major organisation that's had that much of an outage. For that long. For that long. Mm. It's really quite something. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that we have within our sort of family uh, circle, 
we've uh, somebody who works in that field and their company came under attack and it ruined their Christmas. So, you know, it's um, it's you know it's one of those things at the it, moment. Yeah, cybersecurity. So uh, yeah, not uh, not easy, not easy. No, it, okay. it's amazing how much mess that can cause. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of people waiting for their payments, and for some, six thousand six hundred pounds is a lot. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You know, makes a difference. But for Richard Osman, that's not so sure. <laughs> okay, it's headline gripping. It, it is. It is. It is. Let's get into our interview then with Derek Thompson, who is published by Joffy Books, mm-hmm. who are well the inspiration for so many people in the indie industry doing so well. Um, so showing that it can be done, but it ain't easy. And Derek has five books uh, published with Joffy. In yep. fact, I think it's more than that, but um, five in his main series. I think uh, he's got some self-published as well, hasn't he? That's so. right. That's right, yeah. So we, we cut, caught up with, with Derek from his home in Cornwall. He's originally from London, and... It's a wide-ranging discussion. This is quite one of those conversations that just went off in all sorts of directions. <laughs> and I think we all surprised ourselves in the way that it sort of developed. So it's a real pleasure uh, to introduce our first guest of 2024, Derek Thompson. Well, it's lovely to have our first guest of 2024. Yeah, first one. Absolutely. Uh, welcome, Derek Thompson, to our show, The Hopecast Book Show. You're very welcome. Thank you. And just to say, I'm not the Derek Thompson who's in casualty. I'm not the horse racing guy. I'm not the guy who writes um, about success in the music industry, for whom I get at least two review requests a year. And I'm not the guy who's the editor of Atlantic magazine, who I get emails for and who refuses to connect with me on social media. So I'm about the fifth best-known Derek Thompson of all the ones that I know. Well, well in, fact, in fact, when I said we've got Derek Thompson yeah. on, Adrian said, oh, is it the Derek Thompson I used to work with or something, didn't you? Well, I, I've, I'd rubbed shoulders with in my previous life in sport, Derek Thompson. Oh, of course. Straight, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Tomo, as he's known in the, in the business. Um, you know, I assumed it was then. Then I thought, yeah, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be Charlie from, from Casualty, oh, surely. Oh, come on, you didn't. <laughs> If only no. I... But instead, we get the we get the the op, you know the least known of those five potentially, but ne- ne- probably probably the most pertinent to this show. So welcome, Terry. Yeah, I wouldn't know what to ask um, Charlie from Casualty. I'd ask him if I could get a film deal based on abusing his name. If I'd known, if I'd thought about it, about all these other various Derek Thompsons, I would have written under a pseudonym. Mm. Um. Because that's and I'd have, I'd, Thompson. Maybe. Um, I'd have preferred to do that anyway. I think sometimes uh certainly for me as an author, people read the stuff and they say, How does that relate to you? You know, and I sort of say, Well, I, I I don't usually spy on people, I've never shot anybody um that I'm prepared to go on record for. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an in, interesting thing how People associate you so closely with your work and that that can sort of place psychological restrictions. Although, uh, yeah, so I would just think about some of the stuff that I've written and actually that's proved not to be the case, but it is quite interesting when people sort of say, how how is it that you can write things that are so different from you? Are they in fact different from you? 
Yeah, because I think people assume it's come from somewhere within you. It must have done. Well, it does. But, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't necessarily reflect on... I mean, this is this, this. I mean, this touches me because I have a certain reputation for saying things that are a bit off off color in in certain circumstances. I like to shock. What, like the choir boy comment from yeah, before yeah. we started recording? Right. Okay, we're not going into that. But um, but you know, I, I like to test the waters, and people assume that's because you know, if you say something outrageous, you must therefore be without moral compass or whatever it is that yeah. you know, whatever you've crossed the line. Um, do you, is that what you're referring to in the sense that you've written yeah. things which you wouldn't do yourself so therefore no, people assume I, that you must be like that well not not just that but I think it changes people's view of you I remember when I was writing the first thriller standpoint back oh I don't know in the 2000s and we had a, a writing group in Falmouth and that we we had very few rules but they were everybody writes, everybody reads everybody feeds back and the feedback is constructive, can be challenging, and not it's nice. You know, you all, you're all entitled to punch the person who said that. And <laughs> someone, um, one of the women in the group said, oh, I'll, I'll read your material, because then you get to hear it in in a, a sort of cadence that's not your own. Yes. And I'd forgotten what the piece was. And the piece was... Um, the piece was uh, a psychopathic hitman in the shower on his own reflecting on some of his um sadism and the, the person read it she read it really well and everyone kind of looked at me and there was this eerie silence but they were sort of one of them said oh but i was su- surprised and, you know, i was sort of impressed in a way because i didn't think you would push it to the edge that far I never did again in any scene in any subsequent book. But just that idea of you have to be able to let the story lead you and sometimes it leads you into dark places. Mm. Yeah. One of our authors did say everybody has a dark side. Malcolm. Yes, Malcolm, yes. indeed, yeah. So... You know, you're absolutely right. Malcolm Hollingdrake was saying that, that everyone has a dark side. And um I think it's unhealthy for people to keep shutting it away and, and, and sort of, I mean, I always found that if I said something that was, you know, cause I was in an industry which was uh, held together by dark humor, at least when I started as a journalist, because of the things, you know, you're exposed and you go yeah. into areas where it's your job to filter what the public gets, but yeah. you get to see it in, you know, like like the emergency services will see it much worse. We'll get the next level, and then there's another level after that where you just make a decision as to how much graphic detail, for instance, you would share. Yeah. Um, and dark humor played a part in it. Now it's kind of gone out of fashion because I think that in 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 a way, uh, our society is new generations coming through haven't got the ability to deal with it. Yeah, in the way that we did as a generation or indeed we were exposed to because I mean, I'm mean, i sort of going into a theory here that I think I've expressed before on the podcast, but when you are in our case, we're in our fifties, you know, we were born not that long after the second world war really. And the convulsions of the seventies, which the decade we were born into. And then later the eighties, you know, there were harsh realities and we lived under the cold war, which yeah, I think 
these new generations don't even compute. I was talking to my son about this the other day, and he's, you know, because we were talking about, you know, the possible contagion from the Middle East and from Ukraine, and he's he's completely unable to. What contagion? Process, well, in case things spread. Oh, okay. You know, which, in a war. Right. <laughs> I was thinking and, another COVID. And it, it, no, no, no. In uh, in terms of, yeah, um, you know, it only takes one incident to th- things to escalate too far. I think, yeah, the the world's a very different place. I think that I mean, I'm a huge fan of dark humor. Bill Hicks was my favorite. Yeah, movie. absolutely. Yeah, and uh, Sam Kinison, good old shouty Sam Kinison. Um, <laughs> Frankie Boyle, I think, is amazing. I don't like everything he does. No. But I like the fact that he does whatever the hell he does. And the, the same is true with writers. I mean, I, I did a, um, I did a, a podcast. I know another one. I've been unfaithful. I did a podcast recently <laughs> with Nadine Matheson. Oh, and yeah. her books, uh, you know, about chopping people up and everything yeah. else. And she says that's not her. But if you're inspired if that's the right words by things that are going on around you you you, i don't think it's healthy to wall yourself off from the world in an ivory tower and say it's 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 not happening or i just write about not nice things i mean everyone i mean particularly if you get to our age people have died or got ill the redundancies all of that but i think that i think that context is important i occasionally write jokes i've had one or two on radio back in the day uh, the cleaner ones, I wrote um, greetings card content. Mm. Some of that is probably not repeatable on podcast. <laughs> but um, I just think it's healthy. I just think it's a way, it's kind of lancing the boil because what I think comedy does is it allows us to approach difficult subjects diagonally. Um, I have, I have to say, I have come unstuck on many occasions because one of the words that's banded about a lot now is lived experience. Yes. Now the thing is lived experience is, is no yardstick for how other people should conduct themselves or communicate because lived experience can be quite extreme. And people who talk about it and in actual fact, uh, a friend, <laughs> a friend of mine and I, we swapped an email before today and uh, we sort of agreed that my, my mission today is not to talk about death. <laughs> so I can refer to it obliquely there because usually you start talking about experiences in life and things that have happened and all the rest of it. So to, to not talk about that, but you talk about the things that matter to you, but I think that, and you write about the things that matter to you, they can trigger people. And I'll go on record and say, that's okay. It's not ideal. Um, I once told a joke to somebody and the person had, a full-on panic attack. Wow! About a joke, and the joke, <clears throat> the joke involved uh, was when I worked in mental health on the admin side. Make of that what you will. It was a, a member of staff. It wasn't a service user. And I told a joke. It was a simple joke. Um, I'll tell you it now because I think it's a funny joke. It's a very old joke. It's about a hypnotist, and the uh, hypnotist brings someone up on stage and says, "Right." By the power of my hypnotism and magic, I will feel no pain. Puts a coconut on his head and gets someone. To, he says, right, I want you to take a hammer, break the coconut on my head. I will feel no pain. So this person, tap, da-da, tap, nothing. He says, no, 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 you, you need to hit it hard. So this person gets a, 
lump hammer, I suppose, swings, crack. The guy sort of crunches down. He says, I feel no pain. No, no, do it properly. So this person gets a sledgehammer, swings it 360 degrees, smashes it down, splits the coconut. The, the magician, hypnotist, is unconscious. Curtains appalled. This person feels terrible. This guy's in a coma and uh, visits this uh, comatose magician every day for a month. And after a month, on the last day of the month, the magician slowly opens his eyes and says, Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> now, unfortunately, this person had obviously been the victim of some sort of trauma, whether it's the domestic violence or mugged or whatever. As it happens, I've had an experience, but I still find the joke funny. I think it's hilarious because it, it's just a play on our expectations and the sort of stupidity um, of the magician. So my point being, I think that our reference points are so different. And I think a lot of the time when people are offended and let's stick to books, but I think people ascribe intent. I mean, yes. one one of the, the last book that I wrote, spoiler alert, um, which was a, a follow-on to five books that Joffy Books had published, and they said, we only want the five. I went on to uh, self-publish a, a six-book. Um, I say self-publish, it's a bit like uh, launching a slab of concrete and watching it gradually sink with bubbles come up. But in there, there came a point where the logical thing to do in the context of the character was cut off one of somebody's thumbs. I don't know how we got to that point. <laughs> that was because for me as a writer, the characters suggest things. And, yes. and very definitely, I've tried to make them go in one direction. I said, we're not doing that. We're <laughs> yeah. And after a, a kind of discussion in my head with the character, that's what happened. One of the thumbs was removed. And I know that some people will say, well, that's kind of torture porn. And why would you get into that? And but in the context of the book and the characters and the time of writing, it, there's a kind of sense to it. And I also think that it can be healthy to write about things that disgust you. It's a, may, maybe not necessarily a way of processing it personally, but a way of just bringing those subjects to the fore. I mean, for yourselves as publishers, are there any storylines that you would say, nah? Oh, that's such a good question because in many ways I agree with you because it's just like when you erase history for children mm. and how do they learn? How are they going to learn the difference between right ways to behave and wrong ways to behave if they don't know the wrong ways to behave? So. Well, I'm trying to recall occasions when we've very rarely gone back to an author and said, can we look at this again? Well, we well, we have and there was, there was uh, one scene where there was a uh, was it a transvestite character Lewis Hastings? Yeah, yeah. But he he was able to justify where he got the character from. It was somebody yeah. he'd actually known in his. Mm. He was a on a, on the on the beat copper in in Nottingham. Yeah. yeah. So we just wanted to check that it it was all yeah. genuine and it wasn't just <laughs> him thinking, oh, I'll have a transvestite character and I'll do this. And because he justified it and said, look, this person is based on a real person I came across. And it's all those things that you're asking, were they, did they really happen? They really yeah. happened. And, and, and you know, follow up to that with, I, mean, I know Lewis will be listening to this. So um, I hope he doesn't mind me sort of touching on this, but the, the subsequent, there, there was a, a, you know, a major character within his stories who was subjected to some terrible uh, tortuous violence um, yeah. of, of a, 
near sexual nature, really. Uh, and the subsequent book didn't, in my opinion, reflect the, the the impact that would have had on that character in the next book in the series. And so I pushed back and said, look, you've got to have a point where, you know, it, it triggers, you know, something else. If, if she knows this person who did this is back out of prison, this is going to have an impact. She can't be the self-confident um, young woman that she had been hitherto. Um, and so that's that's an example. And I think the other time is that we rejected a, a submission from someone I used to work with. It was quite surprised. I think he was quite bitter about the fact that he did. Yeah, he wrote a bad review. He went went back and sort of subsequently dissed some of our existing books. Mm. But his his central premise was that it was an Afghanistan veteran sniper yeah. who was having PTSD and was going out and killing cats. And we said uh, no to that. <laughs> um, mainly because we know that the UK market, for us, we said, look, you know, if you kill pets, it's far worse than killing humans in in the view of most of the readers. <laughs> they just, they will not tolerate yeah. it. And I'm sorry, you know, premise, your premise, I don't think someone with PTSD necessarily would go out and, and just target cats. Um, <laughs> become a cat killer, uh, you know, necessarily. I just thought it, it just didn't sit with us. So we said no. So there are times when there are things, but not in terms of, you know, things that have been done to humans. We've done some unspeakable things in our books. And quite often it's the suggestion of things being done that's more powerful than the description of what's well, being done. Like and so, yeah, oh, some of our authors have done that. Um, Lewis is a good example as well, and... Um, some of our other authors as well have that suggestion of quite dark, awful things happening to characters or to other people in the book. But, and I think that you know that's fantastic because the suggestion of it. I did um, when I was writing. There, there were two. There were two things I didn't do. There was one storyline which I'd heard of, um, which I'll probably tell you off air. Um, that involved a, a crime and I didn't want to put it in a book in case somebody thought now I understand how that works it was a kind of deception thing I could do that and the other the other thing that I discovered that I couldn't put in the book was I, be, I was doing research for the which one would it have been one of the five uh, Thomas Bladen thrillers was the intention had always been to set one around the time of the London bombing because that had such a, a um, such a psychological impact on the it was our sort of nine eleven as, as as the Americans have said, but also I think as a Londoner, even though I don't go to London very often, it kind of strikes at the heart of part of your kind of sense of self where you belong. So I did some research, and I did some research and it's amazing what people will tell you if you sort of ring up and catch them off guard if they're not an official organization when i did the first book i did ring up customs and excise and i wrote to them asking about smuggling and you know where and how smuggling was done needless to say they never replied but i'm probably on a watch list but after um seven seven i did contact i'm going to be circumspect here i did cons contact a company that used to store luggage and in in the conversation with them it became apparent that even after um seven seven this particular company which would store luggage for anybody near a station <laughs> uh wasn't x-raying anything 
so anything could be stored there. And I was sort of speaking to this guy, and I said, you know, so how does this come about? How old's your company and, and everything else? Because I was going to use it as a plot line, then decided I couldn't. And then eventually this person, I've been only talking for about five minutes. I heard a conversation in the background. I'm obviously speaking to the bus, and he just said, I can't talk to you anymore. And, uh, you know, I deny everything that I've just said to you and put the phone down. Wow. And I didn't want to put that in um, because... I don't think I don't think it would have flown well with the audience, but also about believability. I wrote a <laughs> I wrote a book that uh, is has been described as unpublishable, which was a standalone kind of comedy drama, which I've since last year my goal was and I sort of achieved it is is now a draft film script, and by draft I mean it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and in theory you could film it. It just it still needs tons of work. Um, but as a novel, <clears throat> I sent sent it everywhere, and some of the feedback I got back was um, it's um, it's it's just not believable, and everything in there happened. So context is is really interesting because often we I think we write about the extremes, like the fantastical necessarily, but if you if you if you speak to someone like pub stories, they rarely say tell us a story about you know when you had a good day or when you got a promotion it'll be <laughs> tell me about the time your car blew up or you caught a burglar or i don't know that time you were stopped by the police and uh, nearly arrested under the prevention terrorism act we've all been there yeah oh yeah well last week yeah. i know i have but anyway because yeah. <laughs> yeah. what you're saying that sometimes reality is is stranger than fiction so actually in a way you're dumbing down your fiction to make it believable, even though something even more extreme has actually happened. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that there's some truth to that. In the end, it has to be real to the reader. And that's a different reality to sort of actual reality. And also the other thing is, and we know this, you know, more of a certain age, as time moves on, your perspective changes. So things that you thought were um, true, let's say, you see them from a different perspective and as parents, their parents. So again, the context changes. I mean, I, I know people talk about sort of political correctness and all of that uh, and inclusivity. I think inclusivity is really important. And what's interesting for me is the conversation that's not really had is how as an author, you're not only inclusive in terms of your characters, but it doesn't end up as uh, tokenism. So yeah. I don't have any sensitivity readers. I do have, uh, I'm fortunate, and I genuinely mean that, in having grown up in London, London, fantastic kind of multicultural place, a lot of different perspectives and insights, um, languages, backgrounds, stories. In my books, because they're sent in London, there's a, a significant range of ethnicities, um, I don't think no there's been no trans characters and I wouldn't put a trans character in just to put a trans character in I think you, you have to be able to write authentically about the characters that you're writing about there have been um, characters who are uh, gay and lesbian um, but that's incidental to their their position in the books it's not oh and they're a gay character and therefore dot 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 um and also it's fair to say i don't mind who i kill i think that's the other that's the other point you know 
we, we talked before about this idea of almost stovepiping characters. If a character is from a certain ethnicity or a certain ability that they should be a good character or bad character. And life is infinitely stranger and more convoluted than that. And I think that needs to be reflected in literature. And I think we have a way to go. I think there's a, it's, it's a challenge because whatever you do, someone will be offended. Yes. And it only takes five of them on a social media platform and they can be uh, very offended. I've for my, for my magical fantasy novel, which um, has never sold well for reasons that will be obvious if anybody reads it. It's a kind of um, it's a dark fantasy with occult elements, which I once <laughs> sent to a publisher and said it's the kind of magic that Paul Daniels would not be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't take it on. But one of the reviews I've got, and I mentioned this a lot, it, it just said it was horrible and I threw it in the bin. <laughs> at, at least they brought the paperback. Um, one of the ebooks, uh, one of the Joffe ebooks, a review just said awful. No context, no because of or I'd rather, just awful. And you, I think as an author, you just have to roll with it and say, well, thanks for your 99p. May your God go with you and uh, tell your friends. Um, I think any kind of artist, performer, you're in a strange position and whatever you do will be criticised and judged in a way that, you know, if you're a manager, I was a project manager for um, several years for BT. I mean, we got criticism from the public, but generally not in-house. But I think as, as writers, you're sort of putting yourself up on the parapet and that comes with a job and it's probably something that you're not prepared for. Yeah. I mean, is that something you discuss with your authors, the, the sort of experience of being published? Yes. I th- depending on, on, I think some people find it difficult when they get, the, I mean, the initial negative review, the first one they get, the one star, the whatever, that can often be, uh, it, it it feels like a mini cataclysm, yeah, for the the author involved, and 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 I I think we've had a number of occasions where we've really had to work very hard to restore their confidence, understand the context, yeah. and uh, in that regard, there's there was a, a session at Bloody Scotland that we attended um, with Chris Brookmeyer and uh, Mark, Mark, Billingham. Mark Billingham, who were on stage going through all of their one star reviews. That they'd got off Amazon, and and it was fantastic because they were just reading them out, yeah, and they were they were funny in that context because they were just packaging was was ruined, you know, star also too many words, uh, you know that kind of stuff, and <laughs> you know the the banality of some of the reviews, but actually they did go into some of the ones which they they conceded had had a point, you know, I can understand why this person didn't like because, but yeah. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change. I don't mind a, a bad review if there's some context behind yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I got for the, the, the spy novels, or my take on the spy novels was, and they were mainly American, so I'll do a fake American, you know, why does the guy cry all the time? You know, um, he, you know, he needs to be tough. This is not the kind of manly character that I want. And then you go watch a film and you see James Bond weeping. You think, hang on a second, come on, you know, let's have some parity. But yeah, I think it's known as UBS, ugly baby syndrome. The idea that you're taking your your newborn book out and someone says, oh dear, you know, <laughs> looks like it's been uh, crossbred with Mr. Potato Head. It's, <laughs> it's a strange, 
it, I don't know. It's it's a very strange thing because it doesn't. There's something about the arts and creativity, because I'm fairly sure. I know usually writers are compared to plumbers, uh, or not financially, but I'm fairly <laughs> sure if you decorate a house, no one has ever come up to a painter and decorator and said, "Oh, that's ghastly. That's terrible. I don't like the look of that at all." What were you thinking? But for some reason, it's as if you you've got this. Uh, the arrogance to put your creative output that people feel that you need to be put in your place and also and this is just a, a, an, another dynamic to it i think um in the arts as well the issue of class is yeah. quite an, interesting uh and and again sort of representation i i wrote um, an article about class called not quite our sort which um i sent to the society of authors magazine and uh, they said, we can't use it because we're doing something else on, on class. Thanks, but no thanks. And in the article, I mentioned that I sent an article to a magazine. And they wrote back to me and said, can't really use it. But if you want to make it into a letter for which we don't pay, we'll be happy to do that, um, which I did. And it was an article about how word count used to be calculated by some obscure average number per line uh number of lines per page rather than words word count back yeah. in the days where you used to send something in by post i remember spending 16 pounds to send a i'm not bitter um to uh <laughs> send a manuscript to a publisher and they returned it in two days and said the word count is too high and i said no 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 it isn't and i explained and then they gave me their frankly esoteric method of word calculation i said maybe you could put that on your website so that I don't waste money on postage. And they said, oh, we will do that. They never have. But <laughs> yeah, uh, Society of Authors kind of said, we're sorry that we rejected it. We hope our experience is better than your other experience of the letter and that other magazine. And I said, you were the other magazine. <laughs> and the, the, public, the editor was lovely. He explained, he said, most of my job is just rejecting content because as you can appreciate for a, um, a sort of high caliber industry magazine like the society of authors magazine the author a lot of people will write in mm. um and that's the other thing we're not all going to the prom we're not all going to be overnight successes i saw a book i won't mention it but i saw a book today i was just kind of browsing through and uh one of the quotes was an instant sunday times bestseller now how is that even possible and one of the other Quotes and I, I know they meant it as a positive thing, but it did make me laugh. I yeah. gasped out loud. I, I just think, what does that mean? You know, what does yeah. that mean? Are you asthmatic? What are, what are you saying? <laughs> I gasped out loud. Now, I gasped out loud because, and I think, I think there's a lot of hyperbole that goes with the advertising. And whoever you are, I mean, Richard Osman gets his books get a lot of criticism for the publicity that they get. But arguably, his, his publicist and the publisher have done the job well. They've done very well, yeah. yeah. totally. Would yeah. they have been published if it wasn't by him? I don't know. Um, I don't think they'd have been this successful because he's so well regarded. And that's another thing, that kind of weird branding thing. In the end, and this includes class, gender, ethnicity, you do the best with what you have. And I think you use the selling points that you have but i'm i have mentioned it fairly recently but i'm reluctant to kind of go into bat as one of those working class authors because i'm not even sure what working class means anymore 
Having said that, I've sent the article to another magazine. So if they listen to this, God bless you, Governor, and uh, <laughs> please publish my work. I, th- I just think it's difficult. There, there are no rules. There are these expectations, and you guys must find this as publishers as well, that authors probably come to you with an expectation that's not really grounded in reality at all. Totally. Yeah, all the time. Mm. Um, and that that is the... That's the hardest aspect of our job. Yeah. Is you know, we're all setting off with expectations and hopes and you know, we wouldn't sign an author unless we had this expectation and hope that um, you know, it would bring us uh success, um, clearly. But the obstacles to creating success at the moment are greater than they've ever been. And we talked about some of them, but volume of yes. products in the market is the number one mm. the you know the legacy aspects of publishing that's still very very entrenched i.e access to bricks and mortar stores yeah. um and being able to afford to place your books there because we're not talking about you know it's just it's not as simple as um trying to uh lever a meeting with waterstones which is near impossible um for almost all publishers actually i mean only the big ones get get the set time and they get two two stabs at it a year to 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 press their their cause so that's one thing but the fact is that it's pay to play if you want to get into a supermarket if you want to get into waterstones or whatever you've got to provide all of the materials they they require and you've got to provide it at a price and a discount that you can't really afford and so there's not much you know, there's certainly no margin for indies. No, we wouldn't be able to have a supermarket deal with Tesco's. <laughs> it's just, it's 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 impossible. And so those inequalities and what's happened, as we've discussed, is that, that you know, the nature of access to market through digital publishing has changed. Everyone can do it. Everyone is yeah. doing it. But access to prominence in that market is still very much pay to play. And yes, yeah. at a time when the the price point is so low, and we, you know, I hear podcasts where they say if you want to subscribe to our podcast and support us for the price of a coffee, uh, you know, a month, do so. When we as publishers can't even charge the price of a flat white at Starbucks <laughs> because Gosh. it's over three quid, and no yeah. one's going to buy an ebook for more than three quid yeah. from an indie. Yeah, they'll it's just buy not a flat happen. white on the M six. <laughs> And and that's that's really difficult. So I mean, I think we're all there's a lot of publishers and there's a lot of the industry at the moment circulating, trying to keep alive, and waiting for the next thing that switches in our favour if it ever comes. Yeah, well, as I think we said, Amazon ads you can pour money. Into we that. have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've tried that as a self-published author, and. It, you learn on the job and you it's very expensive lessons. I mean, there are obviously there are courses like Mark Dawson's. Yeah. Which is brilliant. But you can't do any of this stuff and where do you find the time? You know, you can't do any of this stuff in a kind of half assed fashion. You need no. either, uh you need to grow as an organization or you need a hell of a lot of time. And for me as as well, I got into writing books because I love writing. And stories and playing with ideas. I 
loathe is probably too strong a word because that would imply emotional commitment but i do not enjoy the publicity side of it which is why i enjoy podcasts and audio i mean i have given talks the last couple of years i did two talks one to an audience of about 150 which is interesting because i haven't done stuff like that for years and years and years and uh I was the only person to use the word ass three times, which I'm particularly <laughs> proud of. Um, but that, that was the high point for me. And I gave a talk to some uh, writers last year, sort of funded through the Arts Council. But I don't see any clear solution. And that's that I think is problematic. It's problematic for the industry as well. I mean, when you consider the, the what they're now, is it still the big five or is it the big four of the two? Four and a half, I think, yeah. really. Yeah. It's still fishing yeah. but... yeah. all, all those wonderful publishers that just became a kind of nameless imprint. Um and obviously that if anyone can remember the netbook agreement, where at least there was a uh, you know, a, a set pricing structure that couldn't be undercut by um, big business. And that's gone now. And again, you know, people talk about the free market as if that's a healthy thing. Uh, what it's done is is drive prices down. And and again, I think readers, they they see a book in Tesco's, other supermarkets are available. And they think, well, it must be successful because it's here. And as you say, it's a, it's a bit like um, the way that the milk industry I'm not promoting the milk industry. The milk industry was killed off in part by supermarkets. Yeah. yeah. Sell, you know, lost leaders. While you're here, why don't you buy your bread from us and everything else? And we've ended up with supermarket feudalism. We've gone to strange places with this talk. So I, I don't know what the answer is other than maybe a more slightly more informed readership so they understand that when they go to any um, chain of bookshops, Barnes and Noble in the States, wherever, that those books are in that position because someone has paid for it. And I tell you who is paying for it, it it's the author. Ultimately. Yes. Yes. It's mm. less money to play with. And well, it's the uh, same with farmers and milk, as you say. I mean, you know, they're, yeah. they're often having to pay to, to have the milk taken off, you know, out of the farm. I mean, because they don't make anything, they make they make less than it costs them to make it. Um, I, mean, I wonder in the arts if there's there's this still legacy idea that the arts is only for a few. And if you're in the game at all, you know, if you're on the bus at all, you're lucky to be on the bus and you should kind of keep still and thank your lucky stars that you're part of the industry. I mean, sometimes it it can feel a bit like, I mean, acting must be terrible. Mm. The world of uh, theatre and cinema and television must be far worse. But it's that same sort of legacy idea that only so many tables at the top. They're always hierarchies, I think. That's just numbers. That's just mathematics. But what I think we need is a way that encourages writers into the industry, because it is an industry first and foremost, and to disavow them of the idea that you'll write one book and you'll not only get whatever emotional fulfillment you think you're going to get from this. Um for whatever you know recognition validation adoring public whatever it is but yeah. also that one book is enough i mean i i know i have a, a friend um an online friend so pretend friend but he's, he's a hugely uh, successful and prolific author his name's Stuart giles and he will write i don't know three four books a year i have no idea how he does it um, you know whether 
whether any, any of it is augmented with technology, but his work is very popular and he kind of constantly writes. That's not how I'd want to write. And the good thing about Joffy books, for me anyway, is that they encourage you to write and they support you in writing, but they, you know, they're not kind of bending your ear to say we need another two books this year. But I'm also aware as a writer, if you're not writing regularly, if you don't have a book out every year, pretty much, then people will forget you exist. Mm. Yeah. Um, Sad reality, but... I think that's that's very true. I mean, you know... Unless you're the pilgrim man. Well, exactly. I was going to bring up Terry <laughs> Hayes because um, I'm reading it at the moment, and it's your sphere, really, isn't it? I mean, it's espionage. It's uh, He's extrapolated, you know, the latest technological trends, the sort of... the dark hidden technology that is in the hands of both the terrorists and the people chasing the terrorists uh and the the inter you know the way that that crosses over the whole time yeah. and um i mean he took 10 years to write the um his latest book the um i'm trying to remember what it's yeah, called I can't remember. time of the locust or whatever yeah. <laughs> day of the locust um uh and he didn't disappear because the, the first book was such an enormous success and also became a story. When's it ever coming out? And the, you watched on Amazon as the they put it back every six months, you know, due to be released whenever. But he's an ex, an outlier on this on this front, yeah. isn't he, really? Um, you know, the, there was a, a, a pent-up audience waiting for the book. And so far, what I've read, I've been disappointed, to be perfectly honest. Um, but you enjoyed the Pilgrim one. Oh, I loved I Am Pilgrim. Yeah. What would you say is the difference between them then? Well, I think the fact is that as I mean, I've only got into the first maybe fifty pages or something of this. Yeah. And he simply hasn't engaged me with a character. It sort of feels like um, you know, there's no sort of signal inciting incident at the start that gets you going into it, you know, that you feel this jeopardy. It's sort of slow meander. Uh, of you know stuff at the CIA and we've got to chase this guy because he's potentially dangerous and all this sort of thing. Whereas before it was incredibly visceral. I am Pilgrim at the mm. start, um, and that grabbed you. And also, I think I'm very surprised by the way he's written it in the sense that the chapters <laughs> are so short that you know it's almost like. Uh, he really has written literally three or four paragraphs and it's another chapter. Um, so there's been some issue there with yeah. his confidence, I think about what he's writing. And I, I, it just feels like it was 10 years of torture to get this book out yeah. from second, what I'm reading. Second book syndrome. I think that, yeah, second album. I think, I mean, I think that is a trend in thrillers, very short chapters. Uh, I'm a big fan of Harlan Coben. Mm. I actually don't think he's done a better book than Tell No One, which was always also a brilliant film, if you've seen it, French film. Right. It's so well done. I mean, partly because it was sort of a European cinematic take rather than a typically yes. American take, but so well done. Um, it's interesting what you were saying, because my my challenge for the, the thrillers that I write, and I'm not even sure I would call them thrillers, is that... What I wanted to do is get inside the head of the protagonist. What the genre tends to want is the inciting incident. You don't want a guy. My first, the first of the novels opens with two guys sort of blokey banter as they're on surveillance, and then there's an inciting incident. They witness a shooting. Yada yada yada. But 
I think what the genre demands, whether that's the readers or the sort of arbiters of taste, is that you know a bomb goes off or someone shot straight away. And I think as the books developed, I started to bring in more of that. But as a, I think as a writer, you you want to write the things that interest you in the way that they interest you. But you have to have an eye on the market. You have to be like the Irish folk hero, uh, Kukulane, with one large eye and one small eye, you know, one eye being able to see the detail and the other seeing for vast distances. Because I think that that's the other challenge. I don't know, you prepare authors for that. But once you're in the public domain, like it or lump it, in part, you're writing for the industry. You you are, if you like, a professional writer. And I think that changes. It has to change the dynamic you're not writing for yourself or the few friends who read your work. You're you're writing to sell, really. Yes, I think that's that's very true. I mean, I think we are as publishers um, weren't publishing necessarily in our initial thing. We weren't publishing to sell in the sense that we didn't know mm. what we weren't going in saying right. Well, this fits the brief because you know this is currently trendy or, or whatever. And in a sense, we had a sort of review last year of, of where we got to because it was very organic. You know, we'd open the, open the window for submissions. Um, and out of that, we might sign three, four or five people that, you know, whose books interested us as, you know, we read them Good independently readers, yeah. and uh, whose work we wanted to support. Yeah. And then we sat down and we figured out that out of our then 21 authors, seven of them were police procedural writers. So, all right, we've got enough of them. Um, mm-hmm. So now we're going to focus on what else is selling, and you know, women's psychological, domestic noir kind of stuff. We haven't got a strong hand on, and we we've been successful with historical mystery fiction as well. We need more of that. And so there was that was the first time I think in our evolution as Hobeck that we started to uh, be more prescriptive rather than um, you know the sort of the broad accepting sort of situation yeah. now we're in a situation where we feel we've reached the point where we've got enough authors it's difficult enough to find time to give them all the support and the yeah attention they need uh, with just the two of us doing that so um you know that's why we remain shut at this point you know there are some great authors and great with great track records who are coming to us still and asking whether we're open and you know we're having to be honest because we owe it to the people we committed to to say not at the moment and yeah i have a friend who has a similar experience to yours her name is lynn michelle we occasionally do a, a podcast of our own the truth about fiction so don't be surprised if you get invited to that um, <laughs> we'd be delighted she, she runs uh the linen press which is uh i think it's I think she said it's the last. I don't know if it is the last, but it's an independent women's press, uh, female authors, female readers. And yeah. similar to yourselves, she sort of reached a point where she thought, well, I've got enough authors of a particular type of book or a particular type of author, and I now need to make some executive decisions to sort of balance up the palette, as it were. Mm. Um, because the other thing is you want you want your publishing house to be as viable as possible um and it's one thing to identify a target audience but it's a mistake to put all your eggs in one basket totally um and it's hard to know what's coming that's the other thing i mean 
this this idea, as you say, the outlier. I mean, it's some that the outlier is something that you can't really prepare for. I think as an author, or I think of some of the books that have been the next best thing. And uh, one of the books, as I say, that I I had a look at this morning, not yours, not mine. Um, mm-hmm. That is this great book that everybody loves. And then you look at because I do sometimes I look at the um, the negative reviews, not to have a chuckle, but to understand, because I think sometimes it's good to understand, OK, so these books that are really successful, what is it that people don't like? Is there anything to learn? And a lot of the time, I think that there's so much hyperbole in the advertising that um, that kind of for a percentage of the reading public, that sort of backfires. And they say, well, I didn't think it was spectacular or I thought it was whiny or some of it is just thwarted expectations where the reader just doesn't get the sort of book they thought they were going to get. Yes. Yeah. And I think the successful players in the genre market have a very clear idea of what the reader expectations around that genre are and satisfy those. And I think that's true of indie authors. Um, you know, we're close to to, to one um, author in particular who has spent, you know, openly spent a lot of time researching what the audience wanted and yeah. delivered to that audience and done it spectacularly well and uh, continues to do that research and, 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 and figure out where the next, um, you know, uh, point in, you know, where apex where audience expectation and deliverability can be for an author and, and, and all play fair play to them. I mean, I suppose what we've done is we've, we've taken on some things which we have a word in our minds where it's quirky but we love it we'll publish it and i think that um you know we stand by that uh you know we don't go around going god i wish we hadn't published x because that's a waste that's never happened no no we don't because you know we are committed to if an author is prepared to keep writing and publishing with us then we'll stick by them you know we can't guarantee you know either party's going to be rich out of it but you know, we, we could... I mean, that's a fine tradition, isn't it? In publishers yeah. where they just champion an author because they, they, you know, like the cut of their jib, as it were. They just said, mm. I like what you're doing. I mean, and you think about some of the books that have been successful, like, I don't know, Shaggy Bane, for example. Yeah. Mm. So idiosyncratic that you, and the timing is, is interesting. There were books that, that, as we said before, they hit that sweet spot. They arrive at a time where there's there's nothing else. I mean, going back to Richard Osmond now, there seems to be a trend. There are lots of books that are sort of cosy thrillers. Um, I'm trying not to downturn at the mouth when I say that. Um, but they're all also packaged in a certain way. Oh, absolutely. The cover is, yeah. the, you know, yeah. the cream yeah. cover with the, uh, you know, that's the one. Graphic, graphic, graphic drawing. Graphic drawing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You you can judge a book by its cover. What that judgment is, is um, any, anyone's guess. So I, I don't know. I just find it very interesting. The, the intersection of art and art and business. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I feel for, all of you publishers, because you have to make difficult decisions. And often just because of the limitations of resources, that means disappointing people. And no one likes to be disappointed. But I think a lot of the time, writers and authors, and I include myself very much in this, need to understand the bigger picture. There needs to be a kind of a, a, a conversation where they 
the sort of led into a room and said this is how the industry actually works i know you think it works like this you write a lovely book and then someone edits it and it goes off and it gets made into a film but the reality is you know if it's going to be a film that'll be 20 years down the line and it'll be optioned seven several times and it will only be one person who champions it you know if, if they haven't gone on to something else so yep. i think I just think it's a challenge. It's in, I mean, let's face it. These are nice problems to have. You know, my biggest problem is how to get more reviews from my books, how to finish the next book, um, whether the BBC's open call will like the script that I've sent them, and when I can turn the script, which was different from the unpublishable novel, into a novel, and then when you have a window of opportunity for submissions and I can send it to you. So you see, <laughs> always have a plan. But um, <laughs> yeah, there, there are no guarantees, and no. and that's okay. It, you know, it doesn't feel good all the time, and that's okay as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very I mean, fair point. At which point we can um, bring in. I was going to say that's a good, that's a good sort of last force, isn't it? Of, yeah, where yeah, um, we can bring you in on the uh, really the point everyone fears in these interviews, which is where we introduce. And this is the first one of twenty twenty four, so it better be a good one. Rebecca's random question. Okay, I was thinking recently about sitcoms and how when you're growing up, often you watch a sitcom and you wish you were in that family, in that sitcom. So I can remember there was a point when um, Butterflies, and actually I think I've turned into um, Wendy Craig in many ways (laughs) with my cooking. So I would say that Butterflies most reflects our family life. So I'd like to know for you, is there a sitcom that reflects your life or that you'd like to be in? Um. To to be in uh, Detectorists, obviously. Um, the life I never had, but I find endlessly fascinating. The other greatest British sitcom, which would be Spaced. Uh, the Good Life has been a massive influence. I mean, at some point we had chickens. Uh, I, I'm an amateur expert on compost. <laughs> compost. Um, and forever planting things. Um, I have written three terrible sitcoms, um, so I I know not of which I speak. But yeah, I suppose those. Um, the other the other thing I was going to say, the sitcoms, British sitcoms tend to be about losers. Yes. American sitcoms tend to be about high achievers. You know. It, In- yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Frank Spencer. <laughs> Frank Spencer, yeah. Who, and Tom I, Good, as you said, you know, everybody yeah, brandished him as a loser. Steptoe and Son, or mm. even, um, Hancock, if we get going back. Well, I, I guess a lot of them is about, you know, aspiration and being constantly knocked back. And quirky. Yeah. Um, you know, only fools and horses. Uh, yeah, really. It only worked. Worked until I mean, when the point where they had that episode, the Christmas episode, and they they found one of the. Um, you know, uh, sort of the watches uh, created by um, Ujima yeah. Flip, who created, you know, Longitude as oh, uh, Harrison. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, John Harrison. Uh, and, you know, that the point where they became rich again, they lost the, the thing lost. They came back afterwards they, and they'd fallen back into poverty. But it was it didn't work. You know, that was that, an unachievable goal. And yeah, everything yeah. conspiring Maybe. to make sure. Maybe the achievement is that they keep going, you know. Yeah, Britain. yeah, against everything. Yeah, yeah all these awful things happen to them, yet they still remain optimistic and they're still going to yeah. get out and of then, the situation. 
What about you then, love? Uh, oh, well, you said well, you said well, supplies. supplies as an adult because often I I'm stood in the kitchen, I'm serving up burnt rice or something, and <laughs> I think it's just like every episode of Butterflies. When I was growing up, I did quite like two point four children because that just seemed like a nice family. That was um, good. Add well, <laughs> Fab, I quite like the idea of being. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to be Safi because she was so dull and boring. But I like the idea of having a mum like Adina. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of professionally, I mean, I, I dropped the dead donkey. I yeah. was a journalist shortly after that, and it wasn't dissimilar, um, particularly as the further up the chain I went. Um, and certainly, you know, their depiction of newsreaders uh, is entirely accurate. <laughs> um you know, a thinner-skinned breed you could not find, uh, generally speaking, on-air talent. Yeah. You know, incredibly catty. And there's this veneer of sort of togetherness that they put together, uh, especially when they're in makeup. But actually, as soon as the other person's back turn, they're all stabbing each other in the back and climbing over each other. It's quite extraordinary. There are very few genuine people in the presentation, I would say. We, we could be George and Mildred, perhaps. But I think of myself, when I was a manager, I did 10 years as a manager, I definitely strayed into rent territory, you know. Where I, oh, yeah. You know, my conversations were sort of often, you know, telling bad jokes and, and whatever else. And I didn't go around with cuddly animals and go point at them and go, you know, you're supposed to laugh now. Um, but, yeah, I reflect on it. I think, yeah, there were times... You know, I didn't read the room well enough. I well, I was I was in BT for many years, and they put up with me. I would say. I mean, I would do things that amused me. Uh, I remember putting a sticker on the computer terminal that said "sensory deprivation tank," and someone came out to me and said, "What does that mean?" <laughs> I remember just banging my head on the desk. Um, I did yeah. did have a, a general manager who very kindly. Uh, they had they used to have these sort of corporate event things, you know, get the team together. And uh, he said, would you like, because they knew I was interested in comedy, would you like to write something, you know, a presentation? And I said, okay, I'll do it under the following conditions. Number one, you don't get to see it until it's performed. Number two, you don't have any involvement in it. Uh, and number three, I don't perform. Because I used to do presentations and I used to kind of go off piste. Um, I remember there was a project that I was involved with that I ended up naming Project Beaver. Um, so people had to talk about beaver forecasts in the summer. And <laughs> I don't know why. It was just something I did. Um, so they did this presentation and it was brilliant. I didn't have to do any of it. There were sketches and all that kind of stuff. And I remember that the general manager said to me after, he said, oh, it's really good. He said, uh, yeah, you should do comedy in your own time. Oh, <laughs> Well, no, which was fair. Um, yeah, I think I think formality for me is the thing that I least comfortable with. It brings out the I don't know what you want to call it, rebellious child, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I think I think we share that because you as well and me. I, yeah, yeah, I, I think, think I'm free, I've been freelance for twenty years. I, I used to sit in <laughs> meetings and go, "Can that not nobody else see the absurdity of what's going on here?" And I suppose that actually now thinking about. Exactly that. So the series W1A, which was uh, yeah. Hugh Bonneville in television, in um, Broadcasting House, rather, I sat in all those rooms that they used. And there is, you know, an Archer's thing where they had the straw and hay bales, yeah. And there's a miniature Albert Square with, with Arthur's bench and fake oh. 
fake hedgerow, um, all of this stuff. It is completely beyond parody, but actually they managed to do it very well. And the idiocy and lack of wisdom in a room of BBC types used to just I, – I couldn't hold back. My, my body language would reflect just how utterly absurd some of these people were. Uh, and, you know, it, it was just an exercise in, in pumping whatever the current buzz terminology was. And the worst thing that's ever happened to the BBC, quite frankly, is retaining the middle initial B for broadcasting because it has decided that it's a digital mm. publisher, first and foremost, and forgotten all of the values that broadcasting require and you know they're all it's all about clicks and and all that sort of stuff and metrics all of which are the absolute antithesis of making good broadcast content and that is the problem that they've got is that everybody who gets on in the bbc can spout the figures that their digital engagement has generated it's all bullshit frankly <laughs> it's utter bullshit so sitcoms started that it's vapid it's yeah. it's it it it's insincere. It's chasing trends and it's chasing an audience that doesn't exist. Um, because but, ultimately, the number one advantage the BBC has is also its number one heel. You know, it's a great brand for certain type of audience. It's a terrible brand for the audience they're actually chasing. Mm-hmm. Young people, yes. it is grandfather dancing, not even uncle dancing. It's or dad dancing. It's 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 great grandfather dancing. Anyway. And they, they did used to write really good sitcoms. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to Oh, the... no, they commissioned them. You can't say they, they wrote I was going to say, really? yeah. They... Like in the they... 70s? Yeah, they were commissioned. Oh. You know, somebody in comedy would say, yes, we'll, we'll take that script and we'll, we'll develop it. They didn't, okay. didn't have in-house writers doing it. Oh, okay. Anyway, they did used to commission really yeah. good. And they might want from you one day too. No, I don't think so. Do you, do you think they knew, you know, the people who were sort of playing the game, the sort of mm. bullshit bingo, did they know and were they just trying to keep a job? A bit like politicians of whatever mm. flavour who it's a career. It's not a vacation. Yes. It's, you know, how long can I stay and claim my expenses? Yeah, the, there were a number of. There are outliers within the organisation who were not like that. And I would be one of them. Right. Yeah. Who, you know, who still believed in Rethian values and uh, delivering for the audience. And that was the principle thing that i was concerned about you know how do we make this most um you know content you know i don't even like using the word content because that was a word that came in with digital so making programs that had a had a meaning and a and a a resonance and and uh, enjoyability whatever it might be for for audiences um and so i was an outlier in that regard and we were very quickly sort of isolated and then got rid of so um that happened all the time Yes, there were people who would play that game, but I think genuinely there were people who actually believed in it, which is even more worrying. Um, so you had a combination. The ones who were really effective were the ones who could synthesize it and still, you know, and be politically very savvy. Yeah. The other ones who I've really despaired for the middle ground people who believed it without understanding a thing they were saying, they just parrot fashing fashioning and just doing whatever it took to keep their jobs and i suppose actually funny enough i'm just thinking out of this conversation 
something that I've wrestled with and that everyone listening to this podcast over the last three years will know about, which is I've left, you know, left the BBC with uh, a lot of sort of legacy issues for myself. Yeah. Um, you know, it was an unhappy parting. Yeah. And it, with no sense of completion. Um, and actually now just had this thought that actually I should be proud of the fact that I left because I couldn't live in an environment where this sort of stuff was was the day-to-day thing absolutely and you know it wasn't for me and I'd had enough of it and actually I should be very proud of that yeah because that's a brave thing to do it's a brave decision to make also sometimes you know the only agency you can exercise is just getting out of there Mm. whether that's you know work situations or life situations Um, yeah but in case they're listening I'm still available (laughs) (laughs) probably not actually <laughs> well, we can always hope for change, can't we? That well, maybe, but then you know, it has to be the small agents of change, like ourselves, yeah. like the three yeah. of us, and 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 the people around us that, that do that. Anyway, Derek, look, it's been we've we've had an absolutely <laughs> barnstorming and broad conversation, and we're enormously grateful to storming. Yeah, yeah, you... again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been great. Um, it's, been it's the perfect way to to start twenty twenty four. Asking and reflecting on some really big issues. Um, so for that, we're grateful. If people want to find you online and more about your work and your books, uh, where should they go? That's a very good question. Um, if you look up Author Central, Derek Thompson, um, I think there's me and the, one of the other Derek Thompsons. <laughs> You've seen mine because there'll be uh, my books, uh, the Thomas Bladen thrillers and the yeah. uh, Detective Craig Wilde crime mysteries. That's the main place, I think. Unfortunately, that's the joy of Amazon. Other tax pan platforms are available. <laughs> Fantastic! It's been a, a terrific, and um, you know, we hope to see you in person at some point, especially if we're coming down to Cornwall at some point. Yeah, if you're uh, passing yeah. stuff, if you go on the M6, get off at Junction what? Fourteen. Fourteen. <laughs> go and have a coffee I, or herbal tea. Have friends at Call the Ash. If you know Call the well, Ash, not far. Not far. Good stuff. Thank you, Derek. And good day. Uh, wish you every success for the year to come and, and the years to come. And to you. Bye now. And we didn't even get to ask him, is he a pantser or a plotter? He's definitely a pantser, if you read his blogs. Because <laughs> he will set off with a, an idea in mind. And the, as he mentioned in the interview, oh, that's what the did. characters will will definitely tell him where, where to go. It's amazing how many people say that, including many of our own authors, when they'll say the character said that was going to happen to them. And I didn't think it should happen, but it did because the character said it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the truth. Uh, you know, that if you are in that situation as an author, you know you've got it right because the authors have life. They have agency. They have their own power. You mean the characters have life? Sorry, yes. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the characters. I do mean – sorry, I do mean that. Um but that is true because you've created. They might not be physically there, but you have created a a life. Created a monster. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's you know. If you don't have that, I would probably say that is one of the ways to know whether you're going down the right route or not. Yeah. Is if your characters can't. If they're not talking to you, something's wrong. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I think that's a that's probably a good litmus test to know whether you're in the right direction. Mm, interesting. Guest next week is our guest next week is somebody who we keep trying to have on the show, but things always get in the way. It's um, DG Hills, um, who we know as Doreen. Um, so she's another writer, um, 
based in Scotland, I believe. Yes. And hopefully we'll have her finally on the show this week. Yes, it was the third attempt we've we've made to At to least get, third attempt. At least I think third. it's more than that, yeah. Well, look, 2024 brings new opportunities and <laughs> uh, maybe we'll fulfil part of our podcasting bucket list. Yes. We hope so. We were just debating earlier today, who should we get on? I mean, we've got guests booked up till <laughs> April. Yeah, but you're shooting quite high with yeah. your desires. Okay, well, I'm putting it out there now that we want Johnny Ball <laughs> of Play School and Think of a Number fame on the show, father of Zoe Ball, because he was in the uh, Telegraph big feature article and he's promoting the benefits of using some of the armed forces charities for ex-service people because he he was in national service at one stage in his life in the um, late 50s, early 60s. And uh, it's a brilliant interview. I mean, he he to our generation um, is a folk hero, really. Oh, absolutely. Because we grew up watching children's programs presented by him. And he had that just that natural ability like Brian Kant did and then Derek uh, Griffiths, not Derek Thompson, um, (laughs) To reach out through the TV screen and be our mates. And make us interesting yeah. in, in subjects that, at school, frankly, were not that interesting. And John Noakes. Something about maths. You name it. I or mean, he, or um, Johnny Morris, I was going to say. Like, yeah. you know, the whole natural world. Well, they were, yeah. I mean, you know, let's, let's, let's not mention some of the other people who worked in that sphere who uh, were, you know, less than savoury, but um, which he talks about in the interview. But, it, the, you know, he is a legend. And I'd love to just get him on the show to talk about because... Um, he was a bookish child, so I'm sure he has many books that inspired his love of life. Yeah, completely. And uh, we can talk about that. And I think that's one of the things we'll do with the podcast eventually is invite people, perhaps who don't have a connection necessarily with the trade uh, in a direct fashion, but we can talk about, as it's a book show, their, the influence of books on the way that their life's their life developed yeah. and, and they're, no, they're thinking agree. on it. I, I think there's quite a lot we can do in that way. And so. as it is, he has got an autobiography with his agent but uh, and the publisher, but the publisher and the agent are saying it's too long because he's had such a rich life. <laughs> uh, he's been told to cut it's it. So, that's, so at the age of 85, that's where Johnny Ball is working at the moment on, on that. So, oh, well, that's a reason to have him on the show for well, sure. Well, absolutely, then, absolutely. Um, you know, you don't need it. I mean, you know, it would get a big audience for sure. And he is a legend for uh, for us. Anyway, um, we have plans for 2024. I mean, there's kind of vague aspirations, I suppose, at the moment, rather than detailed plans. But let's just think about the opportunities ahead in 2024. I mean, 2023, reflecting on some of the shows we've done and some of the things we've we've experienced, was a tough year. And I think that that is an expression of the fact that the independent publishing scene is tough at present. It really is for a lot of people. And a lot of things that they came to know and rely on have stopped working. And so we're at a stage where we are looking in 2024 as a company to find the next new thing. Yes, indeed. That will put books in front of readers. Yeah, because that's our aim at the end of the day, is just to get get the right readers reading the right books. And in 2023, we had to adjust to the cold reality that, for instance, paperbacks are impossible to now produce at a price point and to satisfy uh, retail demand for uh, a certain level of discount 
and indeed then leave yourself a margin after distribution, storage and all the other things that uh, get involved in and printing and all that sort of thing. So um, very, very difficult. And I think that gradually the marketplace in the UK at least is shifting in a different direction. Interesting um, directions, I'd say. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. So lots of things to think about there. But for us, it's about... I mean, we, we want to go from beyond where we were in 20 to late 2023, where we were considering, you know, the future of the company because of the toughness of the situation um, to the point where we're consolidated and then we're uh, developing again and pushing forward and looking for what's the next thing in terms of where you should put your effort and your money in terms of promotion and distribution and things like that yeah. and, and satisfying our, our, our readers and building that readership. Yeah, I think that's what it's, that's exactly what it is. So we're sort of we're feeling very aware of our um, limitations, but also our opportunities within those limitations, and we're looking for more opportunities and perhaps trying to keep abreast of what's going on so that we're you know one of the first to seize on an opportunity when we can. I think so, and 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 we'll continue to research that. So you know, it's nothing concrete. The other thing that we did at the end of uh, last year was to join the Indie Press Network which we think, given it's now got many, many companies like ourselves, very, very small, independent, doing something different, bringing variety to the UK and world marketplace in terms of books, we think that's a really good organisation that has the potential in 2024 to real, make a real, start to make a real difference in the way that we operate and indeed the, the futures of the companies involved and actually shaping a marketplace a marketplace awareness, I suppose, of the value of the small independent publishers there are yeah. out there. And I suppose in my mind, we were talking about this over breakfast, and I said, look, it would be great if that indie press network phenomena um, became a sort of a, a mantra. You know, people buy organic because they think they're doing you know good by themselves and by the planet. Why not buy from an indie press because you're going to do well for the ecology of publishing and you know you can feel that virtue of buying from a smaller publisher and and making it a badge of honor if you like well i i actually think that one of the goals of the indie press network should be to convince someone in the national media to do a regular coverage of the um output of independent presses in some way to get to that readership who we know would be interesting yeah. in reading independence, if that could be a phrase, you know. No, there's loads of things we could do as, a, as an organisation, and you know, but it, it, it's very early days, so watch this space. But 2024, you know, you start, everyone starts with, let's hope, with some optimism for the future of what they're up to. Um, but there's no question there's going to be some adaptation and changes that we have to make and uh, things we have to adopt to be successful in the year to come yeah we just have to be flexible and work hard as we always do yes she says on a sunday after editing for about yeah you just you i just you just caught a yawn there didn't you yeah you are yeah you've worked ex well we both i've just oh, i'm yawning now no you've yawned yeah so oh, sorry. You, well, you've I've been just, narrating all day i have i've been in my studio and i've actually finished the principal work recording work on a project, and I am so delighted. So uh, it's been a been a labour of love, but a, a lengthy labour of love yeah. uh, on this one. And um, so the principal recording is done. I mean, there will be loads of re-recording to do because 
one of the things that's been so challenging is all the different accents I've had to do, which yeah. uh, have wobbled a little bit or, or at least adapt. I think one of the things you do when you do narration is that you set off with a voice and sometimes you forget how it is. But the thing is, it consolidates as you go. And the more that you play the part, the more you know at ease you are with it. So I shall go back over the bits where, at the beginning where I wasn't quite so at ease and re-record them. Mm. But nonetheless, that's a big that's a big milestone. Yes, so you, you did emerge out of your TARDIS with a big smile on your face. I did, I did. And then he said, let's do the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> and so here we are, signing off for another week. So, thank you for joining us again on the Hobcast Book Show. My name's Adrian Hobart. My name's Rebecca Collins. And together, we would like to uh, invite you to go to our website, first of all, <laughs> www.hobeck.net. But of course, we'd like to wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Start 2024. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.